Praise the Lord. John chapter 17. We want to go there in the Word of God. It's always a great honor to be able to preach here in the Prescott Conference. And uh, preaching all week has been absolutely outstanding. Every sermon has just uh, been uh, uh, the mind of God, powerfully anointed, preached with a great spirit. And, uh, and so we so appreciate that. John 17. We're going to look at one verse of Scripture tonight. One of the remarkable stories of leadership uh, from the last century is the story of Sir, De- or, or Sir Ernest Shackleton, who uh, was an explorer in the early part of the 1900s. In 1909, he attempted to reach the South Pole, got within 100 miles or so of it, and uh, had to turn back. And then, in right around the beginning of World War I, ventured again to go and to reach the South Pole, a ship called Endurance. Many of you know the story. He had a crew of 28 men, and they tried to get to the South Pole. Their, their ship, as they were trying to make their way in, became locked in ice. Uh, these men were marooned. The ship was finally destroyed by ice, and uh, the story goes that for nearly two years, these men were stranded in this Antarctica, and Ernest Shackleton, is, he's well known for many things. He was a great explorer. He actually died on his third attempt to reach the South Pole, but what he is known for and what he is most remembered for is not the lands that he discovered, it's not the men that he inspired, but he is known because he managed to keep all 28 men alive and bring them back. This is a testimony to his leadership. You can read the book Endurance, it's an outstanding book. And I thought about that this evening in light of the fact that this is, in many respects, a pastor's conference and many of my peers are here tonight. Our theme, this one thing we do, I want to talk about one of the things that we are supposed to do. This is not all the truth. I'm sure that somebody can follow me and bring another balance. I want to preach one slice of truth tonight, 117th, and that is about our responsibility to keep the flock of God. To keep the flock of God, I want to preach a sermon called, I have kept them, one verse of scripture, John 17, verse 12, these are the words of the Lord Jesus. He is saying to his father, while I was with them in the world, I kept them in your name. Those whom you gave me, I have kept, and none of them is lost except the son of perdition, that the scripture might be fulfilled. Lord Jesus, we ask tonight for the conviction of the Holy Ghost. God, let every man here examine his calling. God, deal with us, enlarge our hearts, keep the flock of God that is under our care. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's begin by talking about the burden of the Lord Jesus tonight. Because I believe in these words, we have Jesus' view of ministry. Jesus is praying to the Father. This is one of his last earthly prayers. He is going to be taken away. He is going to move into the garden. The trial and the crucifixion are only hours away. 
And as we look at the Lord Jesus' prayer tonight, we can look at it and understand that, first of all, it is the Son praying to the Father. And I understand that we could spend, uh, beloved, hours and volumes uh, trying to grasp the mystery of the Trinity tonight. Uh, but uh, I'm not going to go in that direction. I want to look at it in uh, simpler terms tonight. Uh, and that is that the Lord Jesus at the conclusion of his earthly ministry, felt responsible to report to the Father about the men that had been placed under his care. That he felt an obligation, that what we are reading here is uh, a leader uh, who is coming to the end, uh, and he is saying to the Father, uh, Father, uh, you gave me some people, you placed them under my care, uh, now it is my obligation, it is my duty to now report back to you. Uh, I feel an obligation uh, to tell you about the people you gave to me. He felt accountable. The need to explain his ministry. While I was with them in the world, I kept them in your name. Those whom you gave me, I have kept. And none of them is lost. To Jesus... This was important. To Jesus, the Father had entrusted people to his care. And now, he must answer to the Father about them. I want you to think tonight about the role of pastoring. I got sent out in 1983. I had just turned 21. My wife was not 21 yet. And we were door directors in Tucson, and Pastor Warner brought us in. It was a November conference, uh, and he said, uh, I'm going to give you the opportunity to take over the Las Vegas, New Mexico church. And I'll never forget, it was already a good church with wonderful people. Uh, and Pastor Warner, as you know, was in a wheelchair, and he leaned over the desk, uh, and he said, and you're responsible for everyone in that church. I was 21, I'll tell you, I needed that warning. When we went up to Las Vegas, I had never been to that city. Um, we got up to Las Vegas. Um, and I want to tell you that Pastor Warner's words uh, rang in my ear. Uh, and beloved, I, you know, and it was imbalanced, but I lived or died uh, by how that congregation was doing. Amen. I want to tell you, uh, if we had a good attendance, I had the victory. But when people didn't come, uh, I thought, oh, no. And I was scared. I lived or died by how people were doing uh, from day to day. Um, when somebody backslid or didn't make it, I was profoundly uh, vexed and tormented uh, in my soul. And I was headed for an early grave. <laughs> Literally. In the first six months that we were in Vegas, we had so thrust ourselves in that church in such a fear of not losing what had been placed under us. Uh, I remember uh, one time my wife, we had, we had moved a girl uh, that she was shacking up with a guy and, you know, and, and we wanted to move her out uh, from this house. Uh, and so we went in there and uh, just uh, while the guy had gone to work, uh, took the girl, moved her into the girl's home. Uh, he was a psycho and in a rage uh, while Yolanda was there with this girl. Now this guy broke into the girl's home uh, and began to run through the house screaming, uh, uh, calling this girl's name in a rage to kill her. And Yolanda had to take the girl, and they hid under a bunch of clothes uh, in the closet uh, while this maniac ran through the house. Uh, thank God for girls' houses where they don't know how to clean. And uh, 
shortly, about a month after that, I'm driving down the road and one of our converts who was a biker was walking and I pulled over and I said, hey bro, you're walking. Uh, he seemed a bit agitated. I, hey, get in the car, man. Uh, I'll give you a ride. Uh, we got in the car, went about a block and he turned around and said, they're following us. How many know that's not a good sign? I look in the river, you mean there's a souped up a hot rod following us. He begins to cry and tell me, oh, oh God, oh God, they're going to kill me. That's when you want to pull over, get out of the car, bro. <laughs> Turned out it was his brother. I, I don't know if I, I shared these stories before, but you know, they, they chased us down. I pulled over. They ran over to the car. They began to swing, reach in the car. I just began to speak in tongues. How many know when in doubt, speak in tongues? <laughs> But, I, but, but what I'm saying, beloved, is there was, a, there was a concern and a burden and a fear about those people that was going to lead us to an early grave. I would go out of town, go down to Albuquerque uh, and spend the time calling. How's everybody doing? And, and listen, I've come to know that people have to make their own choices this evening. I've come to know that people have to serve God. And yes, there is a balance. But beloved, there is also an imbalance. I am sure that every pastor here has run the gamut of emotions to his church where he says to them, I will die for you too. I want to kill you. <laughs> but the fact is tonight, there's an undeniable truth. That is that as shepherds of the flock of God, we are going to answer about how we kept the flock. First Peter 5 verse 4, when the chief shepherd appears. That is a warning it is written and spoken in a positive light, uh, but beloved, the reality is when the chief shepherd appears, there is going to be an, an accountability. The danger, obviously, tonight is as a pastor, uh, you can begin to feel no responsibility as to the condition or the outcome of the people God has put under your care. Two quick questions. Do you believe that God has given you the people placed in your church? Question number two, how responsible do you feel for them? Hebrews 13, we quote the scripture, obey, obey those who rule over you and be submissive, for they watch out for your souls as those who must give account. Let them do so with joy and not with grief, for that would be unprofitable for you. Uh, new, uh, to, uh, Living Bible says God will judge them, uh, speaking of the pastor, on how well they do this. We use that scripture and we tell, you know, uh, listen, you don't want your pastor to have to be sorrowing uh, to tell the Lord uh, what you did and on and on and on. But I want to tell you, beloved, it's very possible that the sorrow uh, is not necessarily the sorrow over that person, uh, but it's talking about an accountability that you and I as pastors, uh, we are going to answer. That there is going to be a, an, an accountability and that accountability is going to bring either joy or grief. Jesus comes before the Father. And he's going to report to the Father. And you know what, he, thank God he didn't say, you know what, uh, Father, there are all a bunch of rebels around here. Jesus didn't say, well, the last one finally left. I finally got all the garbage out of the church. Now we can have revival. I want to tell you, beloved, you can have revival even with the garbage. Where there is no, uh, uh, where there is no ox, the crib is clean. 
that the Lord Jesus uh, didn't go uh, and, uh, and uh, like uh, some pastors, you know, who take over a church and you make it your goal to clean out everybody that was in that church, run them all off. Finally, the last one finally left. And we're proud of that. We're bragging about that. We think that is somehow a testimony of, a, of, a, of, a, of our ministry. And our, you know, that previous pastor, he was all messed up, you know, and he just, he just uh, you know, and that brother, they weren't even saved. Listen to the words of the Lord Jesus. Let them ring in your spirit tonight. Father, I have kept them, every one of them. And say, well, you know, they're all a bunch of rebels, uh, and I just had to clear them out, and now we can have revival. God help us tonight. Luke 15, somebody mentioned it earlier. He leaves the 99 to find the one. Jesus is saying something to us. He's saying something about the high duty and obligation that we are to have towards those that are God puts under us. There's something inside us. We all know the caution. Jeremiah 23, Woe to the shepherds who destroy and scatter the sheep of my pasture, says the Lord. Therefore, thus says the Lord God of Israel against the shepherds who feed my people. You have scattered my flock, driven them away, not attended to them. Behold, I will attend to you for the evil of your doings, says the Lord. And I will gather the remnant of my flock out of all the countries where I have driven them. And I will bring them back to their folds. They shall be fruitful and increase. I will set up shepherds over them who will feed them. And they shall fear no more nor be dismayed, nor shall they be lacking, says the Lord. How many know, beloved, that the God of Jeremiah is the God of the New Testament church? And he is concerned tonight about an attitude, uh, our role, beloved, uh, to minister and feed and care and supply the flock of God to keep them. And he takes it very seriously tonight uh, when uh, the sheep are scattered uh, and when people come into the house of God uh, and rather than being helped uh, and kept uh, and sustained, beloved, uh, there's a scattering going on. You probably saw this article last week. It says, first one sheep jumped to its death. Then stunned Turkish shepherds who had left the herd to graze while they had breakfast. Watch as nearly 1,500 others followed, each leaping off the same cliff. In the end, 450 dead animals lay on top of one another in a billowy white pile. Those who jumped later were saved as the pile got higher and the fall more cushioned. <laughs> Where were the shepherds? All right, now I want to talk to you a second tonight about the ministry of keeping. Now, let's... let's let me tell you tonight, I am not trying to condemn you. I'm not trying to throw a bummer on you, man, because somebody left your church. He that has not sinned, let him cast the first stone. I am preaching this to myself. You know, somebody once said that the sermon is the preacher up to date. And I want to tell you tonight that the inspiration for this sermon doesn't come from something I may have heard somewhere, if you're thinking that tonight. But I'm telling you, beloved, God has begun to deal with me about this. My aim tonight is to tell you that this means something and that God has to help us. These are not just nice words. There must be something that we can do to keep his flock. There's going to be an accountability. And if there's going to be an accountability, that means that there are there's something that God has given us to help us here, that we are not helpless. 
And this is not just random. Now, before I tell you what it is, let's talk about what it is not. Years ago, I preached a sermon and, and, uh, and, uh, uh it, it, you know, people liked it because it's so true, you know, and it's about care bears. And uh, it was the idea that if you just smother people with the love and attention, they will serve God. And the inspiration came from a girl who attended a church. And uh, this was just one of these uh, uh, social uh, gospel churches, do good to people. And so this girl attended church. She's a single mother, well-off church. And so she begins to attend the church. And, and uh, a family sees this girl just taking the bus uh, with her small children. And so the family uh, moved on, uh, goes to this woman uh, and says, look, we see you struggling. Uh, we want to bless you. And they gave her a car. And then uh, 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 shortly after that, a wealthy family had had a new home built uh, and uh, this poor girl was living in an apartment. And so they said, you know what, we're going to permit you to live in our nice house because we're moving to a bigger one. And so she attended this church. She got a car and a house. And no, I'm not going to give you the address to the church. <laughs> and the, what made the story notable is that she ended up leaving the church because she says there is no love in that church. So when I talk about keeping the flock, I'm not talking about smothering people with love. I remember years ago in, in San Antonio, we had a woman come to our church, and she came, and she uh, and she's all, oh, you know, what a beautiful church. I just feel so much love here, you know. She had come up to me, and before she came, somebody whispered to me her name. Her name is Joanne. So I said, hello, Joanne. He knows my name, you know, and uh, she's singing, she's crying, and what a beautiful church. That lasted about six weeks. Uh, and then she came up to me one day, you know, more, uh, you know, and, uh, and she comes up to the platform and she says, Pastor Ruby, I just want you to know I'm leaving this church. Why are you leaving the church? There is no love in this church. Well, you've been coming six whole weeks. How do you know? And she says, I'll tell you why there's no love in this church. Because you know the part of the service where we shake hands? That's not love. God bless you. If you love somebody, you hug them. And, uh, you know, I don't know if she just fine, you know, turn and hug everybody. And uh, you have fat chance we're going to do that. In fact, my advice to you, Pastor, is keep your hands off the girls altogether. Amen. I don't, I, don't, I, don't hug, I don't hug the girls in our church because let them know they don't have a father. I'm just reaching out to them. Keep your hands off the girls, man. Robert Polacco took over a church and a woman came up to him in the first service and said, My first pastor used to mow my lawn. And so what happens, believe me, I can go on and on with stories like this, is this idea, you know, and, you know, there are people who come to our churches that are like that. In fact, I bet you there's some people even in this tent tonight, you're care bears, uh, you are high maintenance saints, uh, everybody has to constantly reassure you how much they love and care about you. God forbid, uh, if anybody ever forgot your birthday, man, there would be hell to pay. You're a care bear. You will stay there as long as they do that, but the moment somebody forgets, uh, you're off to another church. You know what's really sad is how many good pastors and pastors' wives are held hostage to that spirit in their church. Somebody, I just feel like you don't care for me. Well, how am I going to answer that? I care. I really do. You know, how do you deal with that? Or the other one, I just feel like you weren't there for me. Wherever there is. 
Watch this. How many pastors, best wives, can say amen right now? Yeah, I know what I'm talking about right here. Black holes of self-pity are in every congregation. Kevin Foley preached a masterpiece sermon today about 9-11. Interesting fact about 9-11 is, you know, firefighters in New York, I suppose it's true everywhere, when a brother firefighter falls, the firemen step in and they help the families of the fallen firemen. After 9-11, several firefighters went to help their brother firefighters and left their wives and took up with the widows. That's the wrong kind of care tonight. So what does it mean to keep? What is Jesus saying tonight? What, 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 what would be involved this evening? I want you to consider tonight that it is found in the words kept. It's mentioned twice in our text, but they're actually two different Greek words. And they give us a little bit of insight to the keeping ministry of the pastor in the church. And I want you to consider them, first of all, that the first word is Jesus kept them from certain things. The Greek word is phuloso, and it means to guard or to hide away for protection or to shield. And the idea there is that the pastor is the gatekeeper of the congregation. That you and I this evening have a responsibility to not let everything pass through our church. That part of the keeping ministry of the pastor in a congregation uh, is uh, we control tonight uh, what flows into our church, uh, beloved. And for the sake of the body, uh, for the sake of the congregation, uh, we have to stop things at the door. That it is our responsibility. I am like you. I get phone calls um, from uh, people. Uh, uh, your brother, I'm a traveling evangelist. Uh, brother, if you have me, we'll have revival. And, uh, you know, they want to come in. I play the banjo. Uh, and uh, they want to come in and do their thing. Um, amen. And you need to be really careful about who you let preach in your church. Amen. You be really careful you let stand up in your pulpit. You have a responsibility. You are the gatekeeper of the church. That is why we set standards in our churches. Standards uh, are simply a way uh, to manage uh, the expression uh, and what that church lays hold of. That is why we have standards, and standards go beyond television and movies. Uh, things like coming to church, going to prayer meeting, paying your tithes, uh, amen, uh, uh, lifestyle holiness issues, uh, beloved. Uh, and you and I must set those standards as a way of protecting our congregation. You're not doing them a favor to not do this. You may think that you're being large-hearted. You may think that uh, you're being extremely gracious uh, because you won't implement standards uh, and you won't uh, toe the line. But I want to tell you, you are imperiling your congregation, man. Revelations 2.20, Nevertheless, I have a few things against you because you allow that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess to teach and seduce my servants to commit fornication Anything sacrificed to idols, Jesus is ticked off at the pastor in Thyatira for what he allowed in the ministry. He says that you have done this. And he's holding this pastor responsible because he is not keeping his congregation. 
Because of things that he allows, the expression of ministry that he permits in his church, uh, the congregation is suffering, uh, a spirit of immorality is at work in that congregation, uh, doors have been opened, beloved, uh, because of a pastor who has failed to be the gatekeeper of his congregation. The word also means to isolate. You know what? We are not involved in every religious thing going on around the world. We don't embrace every latest fad, whether it's uh, the prayer of Jabez or, or the purpose-driven life uh, or uh, the next uh, big thing that's going to come down the religious pike. Uh, there's a responsibility to isolate. And not in an unhealthy sense tonight, but the idea is that you don't get caught up in everything. That you shield your congregation, that you don't just expose them uh, to uh, the insanity of TBN and Christian radio. You know what else it means? It means that as a pastor, there are battles that you are going to fight that your church should know nothing about. David fights a lion and a bear so his sheep do not have to. And part of keeping your church, pastor, is there are battles you are going to fight that they should never find out about. Woe to you tonight. You get into conflict with some other pastor and all your disciples know about it. Discipleship to you is sitting around and shooting your mouth off about people in the fellowship you don't like. See, that's why you're there. You're there to shield them, to protect them. If you've ever sat down with the cynical disciple who thinks he knows everything and all the intrigue and all the goings on, but he can't even pray. But he thinks he's informed because somebody felt it was okay to dump and vomit all over them. You're not keeping your church, man. Years ago, I remember having to bust a guy where actually he had left our church, gone to another church, and uh, then he ended up leaving his wife, committing adultery, and so she immediately came back when he left her, and the, he was gone for several months, and finally, after several months, he broke off with the woman he was living with, and he came to a Sunday morning service, uh, answered an altar call, you know, and uh, from the altar call, they come into my office. Now, I'm going to deal with this man. He has left our church, run off somewhere else, uh, and uh, left and committed adultery, and now he's back, um, and he, they come into my office, and I'm thinking the guy's going to be broken. I'm thinking the guy is going to, you know, pastor, help me. I, I've destroyed my life. I want to repent. I'm expecting that, and we sit down, and I'll never forget, he rubs his uh, chin, uh, and he says, so uh, the church split. Uh, 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 tell me again how it happened, and I heard this, and I heard that. Uh, I mean, I just all I could say is, get out. That here's this man with all his problems, but somebody saw fit uh, to kind of clue him in on all the entries. Never mind, beloved, he's an adulterer. I'm a parent. My kids are getting older now, but how many know that you don't tell your kids everything? How many know when your little four-year-old wants something at the store, you just say no instead of, don't you understand economics? Here's my paycheck. Check out what I'm paying in metal insurance. Yeah. Listen. You just say no. Shut up. Beloved, you, listen. You, if you're going to keep your people, you're going to have to learn that there are battles you're going to fight they're going to know nothing about for their sake. The word not only means to keep from, it also means the second word to keep for. The Greek word terio, and it means to preserve or to save. 
The issue on that day when the Lord Jesus is saying this to his father is not just what he has kept them from, but he is saying, I have kept them for something or I have preserved them and now I am giving them back to you. That there was a purpose involved. These men that Jesus is praying about, beloved, are the apostles. They are the leaders of the church. He is presenting them back to the Father now as ministers. When he gave them to him, they were raw young men. But now in this prayer, Jesus is giving them back to the Father. They are men of God. Absolutely they had problems, uh, beloved. Uh, but the day of Pentecost is only 50 days away. He is giving, they say, Father, you gave me these men uh, and I give them back to you as men of God. That part of keeping tonight uh, is not just what we keep them from, beloved, but it is what we are keeping them for. That to the Lord Jesus there was a responsibility uh, that these men were not just saved. That they weren't just going to church. That they weren't just doing things in the church, beloved. Uh, but Jesus felt a deep conviction to be able to present back to the Father men of God that are doing something for God. I'm listening to Frank Buenaventura give his testimony last night. What an outstanding leader Pastor Buenaventura is there in Davao City. And I'm then looking at him, my admiration and my respect grows even greater for Mark and Michelle also. Because Mark didn't just raise up a big church and a lot of numbers and things like that, beloved, but he kept disciples and presented them back to God, and not just to God, but to this fellowship. Men of God. I know men make decisions tonight. Believe me, I know that. But I want to tell you something tonight. Do you feel a conviction for how the men in your church are doing? Does there, does there any responsibility, do we bear any responsibility to be a, the, how these guys are doing or we plan a man, how they're doing in the field? Is there anywhere in us uh, that says, you know, God, is there, is there something I haven't done? Is there a reason why there are no disciples or men are reproducing like Pastor Campbell said? Is there anything, is it even worth it for me to, to take inventory of my life or my ministry? Is there something I'm not doing? Or is it too easy tonight to say, I don't know what's the matter with that guy. That guy's just messed up. Is there anything, does it drive us to our knees? I've had some great men go belly up. That's some great young disciples that I, I was sure. One man, I agonized, almost made him door director, and God checked me, and I didn't do it, and today he's not serving God. And I look back at that, beloved, and I understand, I'm not trying to give you a guilt trip, but beloved, I believe there's something important. We have to stop and say, where are the men? Where are the disciples? Because to Jesus, uh, he said, I've done this. Or, well, yeah, your brother, you just can't disciple the men out here. You know, you know these people, they, you know, and, and, and everything. And it's been years and years and years. Where are the men? 
And why aren't they there? Where are the churches? We can go through whole Bible conferences and not plan a church. And you would think, beloved, that would drive us to our knees and say, God, how could we do a whole pageant, raise a banner, sermons, discipleship, do all that, and on Friday night not even have an announcement? Is there anything in us, any worth introspection at all, that one day we're going to answer for the men that God placed under us? Jesus is saying this, and he already knows what Peter is going to do. He already knows that Peter is going to betray him, deny him. And yet the story of Jesus dealing with Peter's failure, beloved, was not just a commitment to get Peter back in church or for Peter to pray a sinner's prayer. It was Jesus' commitment to get Peter into ministry. Everything about that story, even before he fails, uh, listen, before the cock crows, uh, you're going to deny me three times. Uh, he says, uh, but then he says, you know what, uh, but uh, when you are converted, strengthen your brethren. Everything about what Jesus did for Peter was with this eye and this commitment uh, that he would stand on the day of Pentecost and he would preach the gospel. That Jesus was committed to seeing that man, that failure, make it. That he felt a responsibility, an obligation. There was something he had been placed under his care. I must keep him. I must try to keep this guy. I've had the privilege of working with some outstanding men. Men that I want to tell you tonight that I take no credit for. Their commitment, their devotion their integrity, their uprightness, uh, amen, it humbles me. I look at them and, and I see what these guys have been doing and I, and I want to tell you, beloved, there's something in me that's like, oh God, please help me with this guy. This is a tremendous guy. This, this guy's committed, this guy's called, he's going somewhere. And beloved, that when they be, I began to work with them, I got to be honest with you, there's a, there's a certain fear in me that God has done this, God has brought this guy to me. God, I don't want to mess this up. Something inside that says that one day I'm going to, I'm going to come to you and I'm going to say, what did you do with this man I brought you? You keep them from something, but you must keep them for something. I'm going to tell you tonight, Pastor, if you don't plant churches, you're going to have a hard time keeping men. If you do not communicate in your ministry uh, your commitment to see these men make it all the way through the ministry, you're not going to keep them because you must keep them for something. I need to close very quickly and talk about the inevitable heartbreak because you know what, church, we cannot keep them all. And our text says as much, none of them is lost, Jesus said, except the son of perdition. Even Jesus didn't keep everybody. Many people have passed through our congregation. I have to tell you tonight, we have planted churches that didn't make it, men that have been brought back for redirection. I can tell you tonight that I have lost couples that once planted a church and are no longer have left our church in bitterness and anger. We haven't kept them. Now, believe me, people make decisions. And Jesus says, you know what? 
I didn't keep everybody. People make their own choices in life. And I would give you a word of encouragement tonight. And one of the things I really felt God deal with me about is the issue of betrayal. There are good men and women here this evening. You have been betrayed in the ministry like all of us have. You've been hurt. You've given yourself to people. Uh, you have loved them and served them only to have them turn on you. And you know the heartbreak of betrayal, the sting, uh, beloved, uh, of the fact that it seems like no matter what you did, it all came for naught. Uh, amen. Uh, this is a tragedy. It is said that Benedict Arnold was eating breakfast with General Washington when a courier arrived with implicating documents uh, about Benedict Arnold's treachery. Benedict Arnold sensed what was about to happen. He excused himself. He laughed him. And when Washington saw what was happening, uh, uh, history says he wept openly when he realized the betrayal of his friend. And you know what? Every leader, every pastor, you're going to deal with betrayal, man. You're going to be, have to say, you know what? I couldn't keep them all. I couldn't keep them. I did everything I could. I was upright. I had integrity. I faithfully ministered. I prayed for them. I, I kept my, my emotions in check. And you know what? I lost them. I want to tell you something. The Lord Jesus lost them. He didn't, he didn't keep everybody tonight. People make their own decisions. But I want to leave you with this caution this evening. And that is that because of betrayal and because of treachery and violation, you have to be careful that something in your spirit doesn't change. Well, you are no longer trying to keep your flock. That, that responsibility. Betrayal can make you shift from protecting the flock to protecting yourself. The fact that people will do you wrong and people will not appreciate your sacrifice. You go through a few things, uh, and beloved, if you're not careful, uh, shields come up, um, and uh, that, that willingness uh, to try to keep the flock, that, st that, uh, that high sense of responsibility, I'm going to answer to God for these people, somehow becomes secondary to I am never going to be burned again. I am never going to put myself in a vulnerable position again. My observation, and I'm sure many pastors here would attest to the same thing, and that is that uh, children of, the divor of divorce carry a curse. Children of divorce, invariably, when they get married, battle, when they begin to have problems in their marriage, uh, overwhelming sense uh, of hopelessness about the future of their marriage. Because of that divorce, because mom and dad did not stay together, uh, uh, this is their world, this is their reference point, uh, then they get married, uh, and the first time uh, he leaves the toilet seat up or something, and it's like, that's it, uh, uh, and maybe you begin to plan, you know, you go to college, you begin all these trap doors, back doors and ways out, because uh, of that trauma, you now anticipate failure, and so all of a sudden you're beginning to guard and protect yourself and if you're going to make it, let me caution you, you're going to have to let God help you with your marriage. And you have to renounce the curse of divorce. That violence that covers the spirit. I want to bring this tonight as I get ready to conclude this sermon and how that can happen with our ministry. 1990, we had a split in our fellowship. And at that point, I'd been pastoring for, oh, six and a half years or so. But I want to tell you, the idea of a split was unimaginable to me. It shocked me. I came to a January conference uh, 
didn't know, didn't know anything and had to live through the, the horror of that week, and as many of us did. Um, and I remember, beloved, being shell-shocked. That affected me. I remember the, the battle that many of us came through when that happened uh, was uh, we began to wonder who would be next. If these men that were so prominent could do this, uh, anybody can, and indeed anybody can, and somebody did. But beloved, something can begin to happen. You begin to look and you begin to, you begin to, if you're not careful, get a spirit of divorce on you. And pretty soon the idea of keeping and the priority of keeping is replaced with protecting and shielding. So you can come to conference, glorious conference like this, and you can still have that spirit on you. You're looking around here. Let me tell you this. We had a man in our fellowship a few years ago. Let me speak plainly here for a second. And he'd come to conference. He was a prominent man, had a lot of influence. And he used to walk around and he'd make it, no, he was no, no bones. He'd say, ah, ah. And in his mind, the fellowship was about 10% of what the fellowship is. The 90% was just fluff and, you know, Pastor Mitchell being a politician was working with these guys, you know, and uh, uh, I know they're preaching, but, you know, they're not really fellowship. Uh, and he would write off whole continents, whole continents in our fellowship. I had these guys, they're not, they're not really good, so they're not really following the pattern, not really. He would write off whole segments of the fellowship. I had those guys in Australia, I don't know what they're doing over there. Tucson, I had these guys. He's not here tonight. Because when it finally came down to Pastor Mitchell, he's not even fellowship. <laughs> because in his mind, beloved, it's not this idea we're going to keep what God's doing. We're going to preserve what God's doing. So you begin to change, and pretty soon it's you got that spirit on you, man. I remember, listen. I've been around long enough to hear all the, oh, you know what, I'll cut you off and I'll cut you. I remember this guy stood up one time in one of our meetings. I'll cut you. I'll cut my brother off. I'll cut you off. He's not here tonight. All the loyalty altar calls, all the Pastor Mitchell, I want to tell you, brother, uh, that I'm behind you 100%, and they're not here tonight. Spirit of divorce. Listen, man. Something has to be in you. God, preserve this. You're walking around and you still have written and people and I'm sure and I don't know about these guys and I'm not really sure. You've got your own little blacklist. I'll tell you, bro, that's wrong. That is not the heart of the Lord Jesus before the Father tonight. Father, I've kept them. People are going to do their thing. People are going to leave. But Father, I've kept them. You know why we have to do this, beloved? Because people can surprise you tonight. And people that you are ready to write off and people that you are ready to give up on, Jesus might surprise you. Ask any one of these men that have preached this week and will preach this week, corner them. And every one of them will tell you there was a time in their ministry where they felt this small, they felt like they were a bug about to be squashed. But Jesus kept them. 
Don't give up on people too early. Jesus never preached a funeral. Everyone he attended, he raised the corpse from the dead. I read this and I finished up right here. True story, 1933, during Prohibition, Depression, these men, a bar owner and his friends, came up with the idea of taking out an insurance policy on people, then killing them, and then cashing in the insurance. They did it for a woman, and, uh, and so they wanted to do it again, and so they, there was a guy named Michael Malloy, and Michael Malloy was just a drunk who just kind of hung around the bar, kind of like a, a Otis from the Andy Griffin Show, and he just kind of hung around the... He hung around the bar and uh, nobody knew him. He was just a, 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 just a total uh, wino. And so they went and they took out three life insurance policies on him. And they were going to kill this guy. And so uh, let me just read this to you if you'll bear with me. I'm getting ready to finish right here. It says, uh, the gang took out three policies on him, figuring Malloy would simply drink himself to death. Marino, this is the bartender, gave him unlimited credit at the bar. The scheme failed. Malloy's liver knew no bounds. The bartender was in on the plot and he substituted antifreeze for Malloy's whiskey. Malloy asked for a refill and happily put away six shots before passing out on the floor. After a few hours, he perked up and requested another drink. For a week, Malloy guzzled antifreeze nonstop. Straight turpentine worked no better and neither did horse liniment laced with rat poison. A meal of rotten oysters marinated in wood alcohol brought Malloy back for seconds. In an ultimate moment of culinary inspiration, Malloy devise, uh, Murphy devised a sandwich for his victim, spoiled sardines mixed with carpet tacks. Malloy came back for more. The gang's next tactic was to dump the drunk into a bank of wet snow and pour water on him on a night when the temperature had sunk to 14 degrees below zero. No luck. So Marino hired a professional killer who drove a taxi straight into Malloy at 45 miles an hour, then ran over him again for good measure. After a disappearance of three weeks, Malloy walked into the bar, told the boys uh, he'd been hospitalized because of a nasty car accident and was sure ready for a drink. Hey, the lesson is don't give up on people tonight. Jesus said, keep them. Bow our heads. Let's bow our heads. Keep them. One day, pastor, we are going to stand before God and we will give an account of the people he placed under our care. Now, while our heads are bowed, no one's moving around, I wonder who in this building would say, Pastor Ruby, I'm not saved, I'm not right with God. I want to tell you, Jesus loves you, man. He cares about you.